Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 29. Exodus chapter 10, 21 to 29. If you're visiting with us, we have been studying through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter and through the plagues. And uh, it might not be fitting, might not seem fitting initially that after this inspirational morning, we now turn to the plague of darkness. But as we have seen in each of these plagues, there is good news. Christ shows up as He does throughout Scripture because the whole Bible is about Jesus. The whole Bible is the revelation of redemption in Jesus Christ in His life and death his burial, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven, and His continuing to serve as our priest at the right hand of the Father. And throughout the Old Testament, we are prepared for the coming of Christ and see the work of Christ in the Old Testament as He's revealed in roles of prophet, priest, and king, as He's revealed as the one who enlightens our minds to the knowledge of the gospel, a theme that we'll take up even more deeply this evening as we take up the catechism question that Amanda read to us earlier in our evening services, we're studying through the catechism. And this morning, I want you to, as you understand, as we know from the New Testament, Jesus is the one, the New Testament tells us, Jesus is the one who led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He was, the, as the second person of the Godhead, the Redeemer. And Jesus is the one who in this plague of darkness reveals Himself by contrast to be the light of life. We're struck dramatically with darkness in this passage as we must be struck dramatically with the darkness of sin and evil in this world and be driven by that realization to the light of the knowledge of Christ. So with expectation to meet with Christ in this passage, I want you to look with me at Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 29. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Then the Lord said to, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. <clears throat> then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see me and see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. 
But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the light of our life. You are our strength, our redeemer. Make yourself even more clearly known. Shine even more brightly through your word into our hearts and our lives this morning. We pray, Father, for those who still sit in darkness. Those who think that they are alive just because they're breathing or think that they are in the light just because they can see light. And help them to see this day if if they have not yet taken you as Lord and Savior, that they are in darkness. And, O oh, Holy Spirit, would you fall on them and renew their wills and enable them to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. So shine brightly today through your word. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. A number of years ago when Jackie and I visited Israel on a tour, we were taken to a site that was new to us. It was relatively new at the time. It was the, the basement or the cistern beneath Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas was the, the high priest who, who put Jesus on trial. That trial is recorded in the book of John, but his house is referenced in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, uh, Peter is in the courtyard of that not just a house, it was a palace. It was an impressive place that the high priest lived in. And Jesus was taken there. He was held for some time. And then he was taken up to Caiaphas to be tried, to be interrogated. It was a kangaroo court. The verdict was already pronounced in their minds and hearts, but he was put on this humiliation, this humiliating trial. Jesus was taken there after being beaten and tortured and humiliated even before. But before he was taken up the steps into Caiaphas's house, his palace, he was kept in a cistern. It was an abandoned cistern, but it was one used as a prison. And the, the prisoner would be taken down there. There was only a hole at the top uh, from which water would have been drawn. There was an uh, and, uh, and uh, probably dropped down through the hole. We had access to it through stairs. We went down with our tour group, and there, Brian Chapel, the president of the seminary, Covenant Seminary at the time, with a little flashlight after the light had been shut off from above, with a little flashlight, he read from Psalm 88, which ends with the darkness is my closest friend. It's the lowest point in all of the Psalms. It's the only Psalm that doesn't end with a resolution, a resolution of hope. It ends with those words, the darkness is my closest friend. I am absolutely in despair. Brian read those words and he said, you must 
understand our Lord would have had these words in his mind as he is the one who inspired them in the first place as he was in the terror of this darkened place these words would have been on his mind and heart the darkness is my closest friend it was one of the most moving experiences of my life as I realized as one who like many of you has in his life suffered with depression and anxiety that uh, and you feel like there you are surrounded by darkness you feel like you're drowning in darkness you feel like it is described in this passage you can feel the darkness it was moving to me to realize that my Savior knew what that was like He, for my sake, made the darkness his closest friend in order to lead me, like you, into the light. It's difficult for modern people to appreciate how desperately needful we are for light and how desperately benighted and how desperately darkened we are. It's hard for us to appreciate the, how profound and how profoundly terrifying darkness is because light is so accessible to us. It's so easy for us to get to. We flip on a switch. We find ourselves even, we take light so much for granted that even in power outages we continue to flip on the switch. Light is so accessible to us, we take it for granted. But it was not something to be taken for granted in the ancient world. It's not something to be taken for granted in most of the world. And and we we have to look at at this plague and appreciate the desperate need of these people. Their desperation humanly, their desperation spiritually, their desperation theologically with this darkness. Now, humanly speaking, this is an utterly frightening experience for them. Now, just, just think how that point is made in the order of these plagues. So far, the, the Nile has been turned to blood. There, we've, the, the land has been visited with gnats. It's been visited with biting flies. Locusts have come on the earth. Uh, there, there's, uh, the frogs have invaded and the worst plague, the ultimate plague coming, the most terrifying, the most, the most uh, disastrous judgment coming is the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And each of these plagues has gotten progressively worse. So that means that, that the plague of darkness is just shy of the plague of the death of the firstborn. That the only thing worse than a plague of darkness is the plague of the firstborn. You find that hard to imagine as a modern person. You say, no, the only, thing, the only thing just shy of the death of the firstborn would have been the plague of the frogs or the plague of biting flies or something like that. But no, it's darkness in the ancient world. Humanly speaking, it's utterly terrifying because you don't know what's going to come and get you in the night. There's a reason haunted houses are not held at noon because darkness is terrifying and it's terrifying because you don't know what's coming at you you don't know what can get you and don't you know that pharaoh pharaoh was not a nice man he made a lot of enemies 
Don't you know that he made enemies of his servants and his servants knew his quarters better than he did? It would have been easy for them to feel their way along and do harm to him in the darkness. It's humanly terrifying. It's the reason that before the work of of Descartes and Gassendi and Galen and Newton and Huygens who, who had physical theories of light, particle theories of light, wave theories of light. Before they, they had theories, physical theories of light, light, the subject of light was in the realm of philosophers. It was philosophers who talked about light because light was impossible to describe even, I mean, even still light is... It's, the, the explanation of light is theoretical, and there are warring theories. So it was philosophers who explained light. And philosophers like, like Plato said, light, light is life. Light is literally life. I mean, we, things can't grow generally without light. And light is also life spiritually, intellectually. You can't observe anything without light. You can't read without light. And therefore, Plato, Plato said, you can't learn anything. And if you can't learn anything, you can't appreciate the good. And if you can't appreciate the good, you cannot live eternally. And Christian philosophers came later and said, so Jesus literally is the light. When Christ was revealed in the flesh, we now see with our eyes the source of light. Light is the subject of philosophers, and light is viewed to be physical life. The Egyptians said that light, they attributed light to Amon-Ra, the God who would, would get up in the morning in the east and bring light to the world, and then he would go to sleep in the west at night. And then there was a hymn that they would sing, some people would sing, the hymn of Aton, which was a terrifying hymn to be sung through the night because their God was asleep. And now this God has been permanently put to sleep. For three days He is asleep. No one can rouse Him because the God of light has made light impossible. It was not even possible to light a candle. The God who gives light, who makes light possible, is the one who made it impossible to create. Humanly terrifying. You're in desperate need of light. You can't take it for granted. It's a gift, humanly. But that human desperation makes us aware that we're spiritually vulnerable as well. The Bible says, the Bible calls the spirit world of demons principalities and powers this present darkness. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and uh, powers and cosmic powers, this present darkness. We're spiritually vulnerable. We may not feel it because we cannot see those enemies of God who are enemies of all who bear His image too, not just of Christians, but enemies of all who bear His image. We are spiritually vulnerable. We're no match for them in our own strength. The darkness 
is greater than we are in our own strength. And these Egyptians realized it. These Egyptians were more spiritually aware than some of us are. They saw this to be a spiritual conflict. Our God has gone to sleep. The Israelites' God has over and over proven Himself to be cosmically powerful. And now we cannot see with what, with what He is going to attack us next. We're desperately needful in and of ourselves. Humanly speaking, we are no match for the darkness. We are no match for the darkness spiritually. And we're no match for the darkness in this passage that also represents theological condemnation. The condemnation of those, the judgment of those who refuse to bow the knee to the Savior. You notice our text says that this darkness covered the land for three days. It was a darkness that was tactile. It was something that could be felt. And furthermore, it says, our text says, pitch darkness, verse 22 describes it as pitch darkness. Literally, it is dark darkness. That adjective added to darkness, dark darkness, other, other places in the Bible is expressly descriptive of God's judgment. Psalm 69, they were darkened in their understanding. Or Isaiah 5, the clouds have brought a darkness to our land. Lamentations has a similar expression, a dark darkness. This is a judgmental darkness. This is God saying, you have chosen darkness. You have hardened your heart against me. You have said, I would rather live in the darkness of my spiritual depravity than to follow you in the light. Well, here it is. I've removed all light that you might experience it humanly and spiritually and now theologically. Some of you may still be living in that darkness. I think I've shared in some context about probably Amen Bible study the story of Donald Smarto. Don Smarto was a legendary figure in prison ministry. And, and when Smarto was a young man, he, he felt a calling to the ministry. He he wanted, to, uh, he wanted to be a priest. And uh, he, he, he fancied himself to be a good man. And he, he wanted to project that goodness to people around him, especially by wearing vestments. And so when he was in seminary, he, one day he went to a movie. One evening he went to a movie, and the movie depicted a priest uh, it was a kind of a science fiction film, and the, and, and the wind blew the vestments off of the priest and revealed that it wasn't a human being beneath, it was just a skeleton. It wasn't a, a fully in-the-flesh human being, it was, a, it was a skeleton, just a skeleton. Dead bones underneath priestly robes. 
It horrified, it offended Smarto because the Holy Spirit was beginning to work in his life like we heard in the catechism question. The Spirit was convincing him of his sin and misery. He went back to the seminary, tried to forget about it. He delved into his studies and one evening, weeks later, he became so despondent over this battle that he saw in himself that he was, he was trying to project that he was a good man on the outside, but he was realizing more and more his sin, his misery, his despondency, his desperation on the inside. And so he ran out of his room one evening, his dorm room, into the, into the cornfields that surrounded his seminary. And he cried out to God, help me. And just then a cloud came over the moon and eclipsed it. And he said it became so dark he couldn't put his hand in front of his face. He was trembling in terror. He thought it was an omen. He thought it was, it was God finally saying, you are, you are not mine. You do not belong to me. And he's cutting him off once and for all. But then he heard a hum. He walked along in the darkness, felt his way along until he bumped into a, 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 a telephone pole. It was a rough, rugged pole, and he grabbed hold of it in terror. And then he looked up, and the clouds parted, and the moon shone on the telephone pole, and it formed the image of a cross. And Smarto says this, now I knew, I really knew that Christ had died for me. It was coupled with the more important revelation that I was a sinner, that I was not the good person I had thought I was a moment before. All at once I embraced the telephone pole and began to cry. I must have hugged that piece of wood for nearly an hour. But I could imagine Jesus nailed to that pole, blood dripping from his wounds. I felt as if the blood were dripping over me, cleansing me of my sin and unworthiness. You may feel yourself in that darkness, the darkness of your sin. You may feel yourself in the darkness of your misery. That was my case when I, before I was a Christian. I didn't I didn't realize until later that I was also a sinner. I just knew I was utterly miserable, terrified, desperate. And Jesus brought light to that situation too. And it's not just a one-time gift. You may be in a season of darkness now, even as a believer, and you've lost the look of His face. And Jesus comes continually to give you light. And he does it, he did it, by entering into your darkness. If the first thing that we're to learn from this passage is that we are desperately in need of light, that we're in our darkness desperately, humanly, spiritually, and theologically, then it's also important to learn, even from our text, that Christ sacrificially supplied our light by entering our darkness humanly, spiritually, and theologically. Just think about it. You know the Bible describes the way Jesus died on the cross. 
that, when, that as he hung on the cross, a darkness covered the land. The impenetrable noonday darkness that lasted for three hours. That number three in the Bible is a, is a number of completeness. It's, sometimes it's a number of, of good completeness. That is, that the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit perfectly complete God made of three persons. But it's also a number of complete judgment. God's total disfavor with the unbelief in Egyptians in the Egyptians is reflected by this three-day darkness. And God's condemning Christ with our sin is communicated by that three hours of darkness, as well as the three days that he's in the tomb. Jesus was a man, just like we are. Jesus had the same fears and needs and hungers and pains. Do you not think that Jesus was also afraid as he hung on that cross, not able to see a thing? One who had already been nailed to the cross, what else would they do to him physically? Don't you know that he was afraid physically. Whatever physical human terror you experience, you may know your Jesus still knows what it feels like. He's still in that body, a resurrected body, but he's still in that body, and he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you because he interprets how you're feeling to the Father. And don't you know that Jesus entered into your darkness, has entered into your darkness spiritually as well. There was a spiritual difference between the people of God who lived in Goshen and the people who lived in Egypt in rebellion against God. And that spiritual difference was reflected by the fact that they sat in light. It was not dark in the land of Goshen. They had light. God directly gave them light. It's not a stretch to say Jesus gave them light because we know from the Bible that nothing has been made except that which has been made through the mediating work of Jesus Christ. That's what John 1 states. There's only light in the land of Goshen because of Christ. This is a spiritual difference. And so for Christ to bring us light, he had to take on our spiritual enemies. He had to battle them. Christ is put on the cross. And there physically, not only was he placed there physically, but he is placed there spiritually as a substitute for those who would trust him for his righteousness. And the Bible tells us, it doesn't tell us a lot, but it tells us in a couple of places what Jesus was doing in between that time on the cross and the time he was resurrected. It says that he, that he preached to the spirits in prison. It says that he did battle with the principalities and powers and canceled their written code against us. We don't understand all of that, what that means exactly, but we do know this. It wasn't pleasant for Jesus, and he was embattled with spiritual enemies. Not only was he overtaken by physical darkness, he was, he was attacked the demons and cosmic powers aligned against God. 
No matter what your spiritual attack is, Jesus also understands what that's like. And then Jesus experienced the darkness of His Father's face for you. Jesus, not only could Jesus not put His hand in front of His face, He could not have seen His hand if it were in front of His face, but neither could He see His Father's face. My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Because he had to. Jesus had to become sin for us. And becoming sin for us, he had to come under the condemnation of the judgment of the Father, the judgment that was due to us. Jesus had to be orphaned by the Father, abandoned by the Father so that He might become our substitute. The hell Christ experienced was not just in the molesting of the demons, it was in the abandonment of His Father. Utter darkness. Taken on for you and me. That if we place our faith in Him, He saves us from that. Saves us from theological terror of our Father, never to fear His judgment ever again. Saves us from the terror of spiritual powers, greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And saves us even from the cowering fears that we face humanly. What's the worst that could happen to us, we think? We are going to live forever. So what do you do to get that? What do you do to get that light? What do you do to get that reconciliation with the Father and reconciliation with the Son and the Spirit? Charles Spurgeon was the great Reformed Baptist preacher in the 1800s during the revival that swept through London. But as a young man, he was not a believer. And the Spirit began working in his, in his mind, convincing him of his sin and misery. And one, one morning, one Sunday morning, he thought, I have to learn how to be saved. I have to know how to have eternal life. I'm going to go to church. And so he picked out a church he was going to to go to. He could walk there, but there was, a, there was a, a great snowstorm that kept him from walking where he wanted to go. He could only get to an alleyway, and down that alleyway was a, a primitive Methodist church. I don't know what that was, but he said he didn't know what it was either. He had only heard that the primitive Methodists sang in, uh, so loudly that it hurt your ears, but he was so desperate to know how to be to be saved. He thought, I can, I can close, my, I, can, I can put my hands over my ears during the singing if somebody there will tell me how to be saved. He came in, there were only 12 to 15 people there at the time, and the pastor himself couldn't make it. And when they realized the pastor couldn't make it, uh, one, of the, one of the leaders of the congregation got up. He was just a, he was a common laborer. He had never been to school at all but he, he grabbed the text that the preacher was going to preach on, and he read it, and Spurgeon said he couldn't even pronounce the words that were in it. 
But he read it nevertheless. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And he said, this man said, I just got to take up the text. And the text says, look. And I'm telling you, you need to look. And it don't take much to look. It don't take a college graduate to look. It don't take a man who can read to look. Even a child can look. You just got to start looking, he said. And you need to look at Jesus. Because Jesus said, look to me and be ye saved. And then he looked at Spurgeon. He said, there were only 12 people there or so. And he had to know that I was a, a, a visitor. And he looked at me and he pointed his finger at me. And he said, young man, you look miserable. You need to know you're going to stay miserable as long as you keep looking elsewhere. But you need to look to Jesus, young man. And if, you're not, if you don't look to Jesus, you're not only going to be miserable in this life, you're going to be miserable in eternal life. Look, look, look to Jesus. It don't take nothing to look. Spurgeon said, I looked. I looked up to Jesus. And I said, save me. And when I did, he said, the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away. That moment I saw the sun. I could have risen in that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks to Jesus alone. You must keep looking. Don't just look one time. Looking to Jesus is not just for that one time when you came to Him initially. It is to continue to look at Him. Not at everything else that's happening around you. Not at what is not right within you. Not at what is right in the world. But look to Jesus, the light of the world. And to a faithful Father in whom there is no darkness at all. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the light, for coming to be the light of life. And the darkness, the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it. Oh, Lord, make those who are sitting in darkness now to come into the light and those already in the light to continue to look to you, the light of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen.